Hey, how are you doing? I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another one. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by my course. It's called How to Get Started Being Freelance. Basically, took everything I've learned as a freelancer, but more importantly, all of the stuff I've learned by chatting to freelancers over the years for this here podcast and put it together so that you can get to the point where you're feeling confident as a freelancer a whole lot quicker than most of us did. So if you want to find out more for yourself or for that matter, if you know somebody who could benefit from it, please share it with them. All the details you need are at beingfreelance.com. Click on course. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance. For writer and editor, Melanie Paget powers I actually hired a business coach. I told her that I was thinking about charging $75 an hour. And she said, that's too low. You can charge a lot more than that. She's like, what's the worst that could happen? What are you scared of? And I was like, oh, am I scared? Like, maybe I am scared. And so she really pushed me in the beginning to charge $100 an hour. You know, you can always negotiate down. You can't negotiate up. I always encourage people to sort of step back and analyze your business from, you know, the big picture, you know, because when you're in it, you might do a project and realize you didn't really like that project. But at the end of the year, you forget and you might keep doing those types of projects. And then if you really step back and look and think, well, why am I doing this? It doesn't pay very well. I don't really enjoy it. I have only a couple of clients. Like I could drop this whole service from my business or I could fire this client or I could raise my rates. I don't think on a day-to-day basis, we either don't think about those things or we're too busy to sort of deal with it in the moment really the network that you create and the referrals from other freelancers can be just as great as referrals from clients or potential clients. Yes, so there is Melanie, her episode coming up in a moment. Melanie actually hosts her own podcast. It's called The Deliberate Freelancer. And I have listened to a lot of that and enjoyed it and can tell that she's somebody who really thinks about her business. So if you enjoy her on this episode, and I'm sure you will, and you enjoy listening to podcasts, and I presume unless you're putting yourself through hell, you do, uh, then yeah, I recommend giving that a listen as well. It's called The Deliberate Freelancer. Speaking of podcasts... This is episode 250. 250. And I'm not going to make a massive fuss. Uh, I mean, okay, I'm wearing a sequin jacket. There's confetti balloons right above me, ready to go off right at the end. But I just want to say thank you so much for listening, basically. 250 episodes, and it wouldn't have been worth doing if people didn't listen to it, and it wouldn't have been possible if people didn't share their stories. So to everyone who's shared their story, thank you. And for you for listening, I thank you a lot. If you've never left a review... (laughs) Maybe after 250 episodes, you're convinced one way or the other. That would be awesome. Uh, Of course, you can share it on social media, but also come join us in the Being Freelance community. You're not alone being freelance. There's loads of us from around the world hanging out there, some extremely experienced you know, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, 30 years under their belt. Some brand new ones, some who have come after listening to the podcast and maybe taking the How to Get Started Being Freelance course and have just recently joined. Uh, So it's so nice that we're all hanging out there together. Don't go through it alone. Come join us. There's a link to everything that I get up to with Being Freelance at beingfreelance.com. Right now, though, I'll shut up and crack on with this week's episode. We have got Melanie Paget powers who is a freelance writer and editor. Hey, Melanie! Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you so much for doing this. As ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? 
Sure. Um, so I started freelancing in October 2013 after leaving a job I hated. <laughs> <laughs> and I was at the point where I never thought I'd be freelance. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. But I was at the point with this job. It was actually a job I'd worked at before and I had gone back to. And it was not what I had remembered and a lot had changed. And I was looking to leave. And I was doing some interviews for other jobs and I was not finding anything I liked. And you don't really know what the job is going to be until you get in there, right? You don't know the culture. You don't know what the bosses are really like. And I was just tired of doing that and finding out that it you know, jobs that I thought were going to be great were not. <laughs> so I was just kind of sick and disillusioned with the whole employee situation. And so I thought, well, I'll just be a freelancer. <laughs> and it's kind of arrogant, but I, because I had no plans. And so I made this decision and signed up for a digital social media conference that was coming up. And the one thing that really helped was I went and sent an email out to virtually my entire network. And luckily, I had already lived in the Washington, D.C. area for 13 years doing writing and editing. So I had a very vast network of people that I had worked with or I had met, and then they moved on to other jobs. And so I just emailed everybody and told them what I was doing and got a couple jobs right away. So I thought, oh, I could do this. And um, luckily, I had a little money in the bank, although I did not have you know, the recommended in the U.S. We always say, oh, you should have six months of money in the bank. I did not have that. Um, but it, the holidays were coming up and I was able to take it kind of easy. And by January, I got a couple of big clients and I was off and running. Wow. So I was going to ask if if you'd been working in a similar thing. So that, yeah. that network was kind of key right at the start. Absolutely. Yeah, I started out as a newspaper reporter. I have a journalism degree and I was a newspaper reporter in small towns in Indiana, where I'm originally from. And then I moved to D.C., when I was about 27 and fell into a job at a membership association, which there are thousands of them in DC is where they all are. Uh And journalism really helps because basically you're doing writing and editing for an organization. And so I had done a lot of writing in the healthcare space and had worked my way up from being an assistant editor of a newspaper at an, at an association to managing magazines and which is my favorite thing to do. So yeah, I, that's what I do now as a freelancer. I do a lot of editing and managing editing, copy editing, a lot of healthcare writing. So it's it's I had that uh, experience and network, even though that wasn't the plan. Uh, it all worked out. And do you now like, or did you then and do you now like position yourself as that as in you call yourself, for example, a healthcare writer on a membership? editor or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's funny because it depends on the audience because I do say I'm a healthcare writer, but I also say that I am a membership association editor or writer. Most of my clients are membership associations. I have a really great network there and that's what I like to do. And because people know me, I get a lot of referrals and um, assignments. I don't have to pitch or really go after work as much because it tends to come to me ah uh, but when because you say you know it depends who the audience is so how did you get around that when you were for example putting it on your website or your social media you know like the place where they they combine Mm -hmm. yeah it's a little tricky I I mean I the short version is I'm a freelance writer and editor and then I'll start to say 
Well, I'm a healthcare writer, but I also work for membership associations. So that means I can work for any membership association, or I, but I specialize in healthcare. But I also do healthcare as in I ghostwrite for hospital blogs or healthcare companies. So the two kind of combine and then branch out on their own. So on the website, I've been clear. I've made sure I have words like membership association and content writer and healthcare writer sort of sprinkled throughout. Does a lot of that tend to be quite recurring work? Yes. Um, I like to have anchor clients, you know, those regular clients. So I don't have to have that, you know, go through that feast or famine cycle. So I look for anchor clients. A lot of those are magazines. So magazines in the membership association world right now normally come out every other month or quarterly. But if I can get a couple of gigs as managing editor of those magazines, those are quite regular. And then I have all of the, then I have a few copy editing clients that doesn't pay as much, but they're consistent. So I can rely on, you know, it might all add up to $1,000 a month, um, all these little jobs. And then the writing is, the idea is to have a lot of different writing clients because I know as a managing editor, I don't hire the same writer every magazine issue. You want a diversity of writers. So even though I have clients I've worked with forever and we have a great relationship, they may only hire me for a couple of magazines a year. So I have to kind of cobble together a lot of different magazines and that becomes a little more consistent. Mm. Now, I know you or came across you, actually, maybe via Twitter, but I listened a lot to your podcast, Uh Deliberate Freelancer, right? Yes. I love the title of that because listening to it, I do get the sense of you being deliberate. But I wonder, like, how, how do you feel you go about being deliberate about your business? Yes. So my personality is also one I like order and structure in my life. So (laughs) I tend to be very deliberate in a lot of things, which is interesting because as a freelance business owner, you also have to be entrepreneurial. So it's an interesting combination that I've tried to figure out over the last few years. But yes, I'm very deliberate in how I know how much money I need to make every month. I have a a deliberate sort of structure to my day. Now I'm, I'm more flexible with that, but I get up and, you know, go into my office and have kind of a morning routine. And I have a wrap up routine at the end of the day that tells me work is done. Now it's time for your personal life. And I try to market and network all the time. I think that's very deliberate to always be thinking about what new work I need to have come in, especially if I lose a client. Um, so I'm always, I, it's just sort of the way I'm structured. My brain just is, likes order. And I think in very structured ways. So do you like search out data for your business? I don't as much for my business, but I do, you know, there's this thing called analysis paralysis, (laughs) where, you know, I do look at my own data, and I can get really bogged down in it. But it's fascinating to me. Um, So for example, at the end of every, well, at the end of every year, I definitely look at I analyze my business, where the money came from, what segments of my business it came from. Did I enjoy it? I really do a lot of data that way. 
Um, in fact, this last year I made pie charts, <laughs> which Ooh, was really nice. fun. That was super fun. Um, <laughs> and I started for my podcast this year, I've been doing a lot more. Well, for my business, I've been doing a lot more time tracking, a lot more diligently. And so each quarter now on my podcast, I do a time tracking audit at the end to, to just talk to listeners about where I spent my time, what I learned, what I'm hoping to change for the next quarter based on what I learned. So yes, I definitely like data. Ah, I love that, you know, like what you're then looking to change, because that's the thing mm -hmm. is that you can look at a lovely pie chart and pie charts are lovely, but then it's like maybe figuring out what to do with that information. Yeah. And I always encourage people to sort of step back and analyze your business from, you know, the big picture, you know, because when you're in it, you might do a project and realize you didn't really like that project. But at the end of the year, you forget and you might keep doing those types of projects. And then if you really step back and look and think, well, why am I doing this? It doesn't pay very well. I don't really enjoy it. I have only a couple of clients. Like I could drop this whole service from my business or I could fire this client or I could raise my rates. I don't think on a day-to-day -day basis, we either don't think about those things or we're too busy to sort of deal with it in the moment. So you tend to look at things, was it quarterly, did you say? For my time tracking, I do, but I, I do have occasional, I call them my solo business retreats. <gasps> do you actually go somewhere? <laughs> well, it pre-pandemic occasionally. Um, the first one was kind of a joke. It's why I named it Solo Business Retreat because I did it <laughs> in my house. I went from my office to my dining room and, <laughs> and it was solo, of course. And we always think of big corporate retreats. And so it was my solo business retreat where I went to my dining room and I didn't do any client work that day and I didn't check email and I like colorful things. So I got a lot of post-it notes and colorful Sharpies and wrote all these ideas on paper and really, again, stepping back and looking at my business and thinking about what was working and what wasn't working and what I like. And so I've started doing that definitely at least twice a year. I try to do it more once a quarter. And I did in January 2020, I actually did go somewhere. I happened to be going to Chicago for a conference and I went there a day early and <laughs> because Chicago is freezing in January, I got a really good deal at a hotel and I was able to get this <laughs> hotel suite a day early and really just sort of camp out there and have my retreat there, which was lovely. Oh, nice. And you just sneaked it in before a pandemic. Like, I that's did. <laughs> good planning. Um, how important is going to conferences then? I love conferences. I go to two different types. So I go for writers and editors. So those are my people. And I get a lot of um, invigoration from seeing other writers and editors, you know, people that know what I'm talking about, and also other freelancers who we all work by ourselves all day long. And I learn a lot about running a business or pick up editing skills or writing tips. And those are just really um, a great camaraderie. And then I also go to conferences for membership associations. Luckily, I'm in the DC area, which is where they all are, as I said. And we have an organization here that is called, well, we're changing the name right now, but it was called um, Association Media and Publishing. And it's basically all the people like me who work at an association or for an association who do media, publications, communications, marketing. And those are where my clients are. And I make sure to 
I'm very involved in that organization. I try to speak at the conference every year. I try to do different webinars throughout the year because that's how I get my clients is really being front and center at that conference and with that organization. Ah, How did you put yourself at the center of it? Yeah, so I was lucky. Again, I was involved in that organization almost since I moved to D.C. when I started working at membership associations. A lot of people had heard of it, and I started going to in-person lunch and learns and we would apply for the award send our publications off for the awards program and then I knew so I'd always gone to the conference and I'd made a lot of true friends there people that I saw outside of the conference who happened to live in DC too and then when I went out on my own I knew I needed to really step it up and so I started going to a lot of the in-person lunch and learns, even if it really wasn't a topic that I was interested in or didn't relate to what I did, uh, just to meet people. I made sure to apply to speak at the conference and I got accepted for that for a couple years. And then probably it's three years ago, four years ago, um, I ran for the board. So I'm on the board now. I'm getting ready to roll off the executive committee after two years. And I love this organization. I love what we do. But of course, it's also where I stay in contact and get a lot of work as well. Nice. How much time does that sort of take up? How how do you balance that sort of networking? Um, you know, you said that you market and network all the time. Mm-hmm. But how do you get that balance between doing the work and, and putting yourself out there? That is a challenge. <laughs> this organization, I'm talking about AMMP, we, um, I'm very involved in it. And I'm actually cutting back a little bit this year. I'm rolling off, as I said, the executive committee. I only have one more year on the board. But it's something I'm really passionate about and, and not just to get clients. I like a lot of the things that we're doing. There's an, a, diversity, a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative that I'm involved in. And so that's a challenge because that's all unpaid work. <laughs> and um, so that's something I kind of struggle with because I really love being with those people and working on these things, but I'm not getting paid for any of it. And unlike an employee, if I don't work, I don't get paid as we know. So, and then there's the, all the other marketing and networking I do. um, And that's a little more organic. I need to do some more intentional marketing this next couple of months um, because I've lost a couple of clients. And so that's, yeah, that's something I'm definitely working on now because it is difficult to figure out how much time to spend on it and how much um, sort of where to focus, you know, it could be like 72 options of how to market, what should I choose? And so I'm going to be spending a lot of time the next month or so to figure out what I need to do. And that's something I can do at a solo business retreat. You know, I I often Mm. have those retreats where I have themes. And so I could do, you know, a ha- just even a half day, if I spend four hours thinking, okay, what is my marketing strategy? I need to update it from what it was a couple years ago. You know, that that'll sort of set me on the path for the rest of the year. And I mean, the clue is in the title because you use the word solo. But do you ever discuss like those kind of work things with anyone else? I do some of that. I have a couple of freelance friends that I discuss these things with. I do talk about it a lot with my husband. He also owns a business. And so we were very different in personality. But we talk about marketing a lot, especially when I first started. And I always run things by him. And that helps just to talk it out. But 
and I, as I said, I do talk about it with some freelance friends. I'm not one, you know, some people like to join accountability groups or they do. I know people, I know a couple of friends that check in every week with a friend and, and have goals and, and that's just never appealed to me. I don't really want that accountability and I don't, it feels like one more thing I have to do. <laughs> um, so that works really well for some people, but I don't think that's for me. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Earlier on, you said about having a morning routine, but then you said you have a wrap up routine to mm-hmm. make sure that like your your day is fit. What's what's your wrap up routine at the end of the day? So one thing I do in the morning is I look at my schedule, and I, of course I have a little to do list of things I definitely need to get done that day. But I also set alarms for all the things that I have to, like phone calls or meetings. And so I set alarm for five minutes before that meeting, so I don't get wrapped up in writing and I completely forget that it's two o'clock and I have a meeting. And so those alarms keep me uh, reassured that I'm not going to miss any thing that I have to do to schedule time. Mm. And then at the end of the day, so I try, it's a little in flux right now, but I try, I'm not, I'm much better working in the morning. I'm not very productive (laughs) with like cognitive tasks in the afternoon. So a lot of times I'll stop at three o'clock or I'll just do admin work after three o'clock. So around three o'clock, I start to think, okay, what do I need to do to end the day? Did I, I look at my to-do list. Is there something that had to be done today that I haven't done? And then I take a look at my email and say, okay, is there anything I have to answer today that I completely, you know, haven't dealt with yet? Or it's just sort of this reassurance that I haven't missed anything. Did I do everything that had to be done today? And then I take the time to write a short to-do list for the next day and that includes it's, – it's, I try to make them really short because it's a to-do list for every day. It's not this ongoing to-do list. And it needs to be doable and not overwhelming. And so I just write down the couple things that I know that I have to do the next day, including, you know, I might say three things and then I'll say two o'clock meeting. And that just is reassuring to set that by my computer and know that I've looked at everything that had to be done today. I've set my little to-do list for the next day and I'm done. And so I can shut my laptop and leave my office and I'm done for the day. I don't, nothing is hanging over my head. I'm not worried that, oh, did I forget to do that? And I leave my laptop in my office and I often leave my phone up there, or at least I'll put it back up there at night. And that just means I'm not checking email at night and I'm really unplugged from work for the most part. Oh, leaving a phone. Um. <laughs> it is hard. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to lie. Um, I like baseball and I'll watch baseball out at night now and I'll have my phone with me and I'm, you know, looking on Twitter and my husband says, are you scrolling, scrolling, scrolling? And I say, mm. yes, I am. Cause it's just mindless, right? I'm not doing anything. And sometimes that's fun, but I don't really want to do that for several hours. And so I often will leave my phone up in the office and, you know, read a book or pick up a magazine on the commercials during the baseball game or well we watch a lot of shows on Netflix and all the other streaming channels so we do that at night Mm. and I'm not mindlessly looking at my phone at the same time is social media you mentioned Twitter is social media something that you use a lot for your work or 
I do. Um, I love Twitter. That's my favorite. I love it both for work and my just fun. I think the reason it works for work is because I do love it. So I'm not forcing myself to go on Twitter. I'll, I'd be there all day long if someone did, if I didn't leave my phone away for me. Um, and so I've connected a lot with a lot of people on Twitter and you know, some people talk about, oh, Twitter's a cesspool. And (laughs) while it can be that, I've really curated it to the people that I follow. Mm. I follow a really interesting group of people that I've curated. And so I don't see a lot of the negativity and maybe that puts me in a bubble. But I also have been able to develop a lot of relationships with writers and editors and other freelancers. I find a lot of podcast guests through there. But I've also gotten work from Twitter, from connecting with other editors, other people in the membership association industry, Um, just, you know, casually talking to people every now and then being really authentic and just having conversations that may have to do with work, but may not do with work. And um, so people have contacted me through Twitter and say, you know, I've, I've seen that you wrote you were tweeting a lot about healthcare. Are you in your healthcare writer? Cause that's in your bio. And um, so I've gotten some work that way too. Oh, cool. And what about LinkedIn? Cause I kind of imagine that the mm-hmm. sort of thing you do, but that must be something. Yeah. I've been on LinkedIn forever, but haven't really done much with it until this past year. And I've been intentionally going over there more often, posting, commenting, kind of looking around. I still am probably not maximizing how to look for work on there or connecting with other editors. You know, I follow a lot of people, a lot of people follow me, but I'm not as active. But I've definitely stepped that up recently because I do know that's where a lot of my client base is. They're not, I'm not going to find them on Facebook or Instagram. I'm going to find some of them on Twitter, but that's a very small portion. So LinkedIn is more where they might be. Mm. Speaking of the last year, like how have you found that? So like a year of running a business through a pandemic, how, how did you fare? <laughs> well, coming out the other side, I think I'm doing pretty well. Um, I panicked like a lot of people (laughs) in March. I mean, it was hard, right? Because you're anxious because what in the world is happening to our world and what's this going to mean for everyone? And then on top of that, you have to worry about your business, right? So I lost work um, in soon after the pandemic started here in the US, which well, not started here in the US, but really went widespread, which was like mid-March. And I lost my biggest client. It was half my income. And I lost a couple of smaller clients. And, you know, I was really worried. And so I was like, okay, well, you have to get a bunch of work now and make up that income because I'm the breadwinner in my family. I make a lot more money than my husband does and I pay a lot of the bills. And so um, there's no sitting back and, you know, taking it easy for a couple months and just focusing on my anxiety. So the first thing I did was I crafted a letter to send out to my entire network. And that was friends and former colleagues and clients and potential clients that I'd had some sort of conversation with before. It wasn't a cold email. And so it was this really big network of, I don't know, I think I sent it to maybe a couple hundred people. And it was a mass email to everyone. And it was kind of, you know, I was like, hey, you know, I have some availability now, thanks pandemic. You know, I was kind of funny in it and was honest that I needed clients. And what I did is I 
bulleted out the things that I did because even current clients, you know, they might hire me for writing and they don't even realize I do this type of proofreading of magazines, for instance. So I bulleted out all the different services I could provide and said, you know, how can I help you? Or do you know someone who might need my help? Um, Can you forward this to them or send me any leads? And that was great because of my network. I got um, a lot of, you know, response from people. I mean, I just even people that were it was just nice to hear from people that say, I don't have any work from you, but, you know, I really feel for you and we're all in this together and you can do this. And that was just nice and supportive. But I also got actual work out of it. And I got two really big clients last year that basically saved my butt during the pandemic. Um, One was a magazine and one was an editing job. And both of those came from other freelance friends. One was a writer who worked for this company who said, I know they need editors. I'll put in a good word for you. And because they liked her so much and she'd worked with them so long, I basically skipped the line and they hired me immediately. And that was that paid really well and was very consistent. Um, it was about we I edited a bunch of articles about COVID, so it was very relevant and there was a lot of work. And then another freelance writer told me a sent along a job that she, ad that she had seen for a managing editor position, and so I followed up with them and and got that gig. So I get you know I say all the time it's really the network that you create and the referrals from other freelancers can be just as great as referrals from clients or, or potential clients. And so, I, yeah, I'll just add that, you know, I, I was very open with people that I've never really had anxiety in my life, but I definitely had anxiety during the pandemic. And I even saw a therapist virtually last summer for about a month to help get, give me some tools. Again, I'm very deliberate. I was like, tell me what to do and I'll do it (laughs) Um, to give me some tools to help me get by day to day because there were days where I didn't feel like working and I had to. And so that was, you know, I tried to give, I said a lot last year that we all just need to give ourselves some grace and be really kind to ourselves. And um, that kind of, I try to keep reminding myself of that to get me through the year. Yeah, that's great. What do you find works when maybe you're not feeling motivated for a day of work, but you know you've got to? I think if I have to, well, if I don't have to that day, I think definitely take the day off. I think freelancers tend to push through and really struggle with the day and try to force themselves to do something. And, you know, they might spend six hours and kind of, you know, forcing themselves to do something it's only an hour's worth of work and maybe not even good work so it's okay to take the day off and just veg you don't have to be productive all the time but if you really have to work um I've done some different things my therapist taught me um I do some meditation I probably should do I should meditate more often I do it in the moment where you know I use different meditation apps and just really focus on my, but you can do it even without an app, just really focusing on my breathing and taking deep breaths and counting my breaths and just focusing on that really calms me down. Um, She taught me how to do grounding, which I find very helpful. And that is, there's different ways of doing it, but it's really one way you could do it is pick a place that you, or a scene that you really love. So if you love the mountains or you love the beach or you have a favorite place, really just kind of close your eyes and relax and really picture that scene and go through your senses. So what does the scene look like? What does it smell like? What is it? Are you eating? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? For me, I always pick Key West. 
<laughs> that's a place that I love and I really like hot weather. And so I feel the sun on my face and I can picture it and I can hear the ocean breeze and it just really, I mean, it grounds you, right? It really centers mm. you and it calms me and it gets me to kind of focus. And then when I really have to do work, a lot of times I listen to Mozart with my headphones on. And that also just kind of keeps me focused and calms me a little bit. Nice. Um, speaking of wearing headphones, I mentioned your podcast. Yes. What made you start a podcast? <laughs> well, I was a big fan of podcasts starting around kind of, I don't know, 2016, 2017, basically like so many other people when Serial came out. And I started listening to Serial and I was like, what is this thing called podcast? And I found, suddenly found all of these podcasts and all these different topics that I got really interested in. And so I became a fan of podcasts. But even since 2013, when I went out on my own as a freelancer, I always I found out very quickly that I loved helping other freelancers be successful. So whether that was I was suddenly giving tips about how to think about their business and how to get clients and how to price projects. And I found freelancers who thought of themselves as a business did better. And then other people who quote unquote, thought they're just a freelancer, or this was kind of something they were trying out, but they weren't very confident about it, didn't do as well. And they really struggled with their confidence. And so I really liked helping other freelancers succeed. And I always say I never want to be an employee ever again. <laughs> and for those people that feel that way, I want to help you succeed. And so that just kind of merged with my love of podcasts. And I was doing different, you know, webinars and conference presentations on how to run a freelance business at these writer and editor conferences. And I thought, you know, a podcast would be so much fun. I'm already a content person, so I don't have to figure out, I know how to interview. I'm a reporter. I don't have to learn how to interview. I don't have to learn how to create content. All I have to do is figure out the tech stuff and get it set up. And so I just really thought it would be fun to be able to kind of spread that message and help more people. And so I started it two years ago and I absolutely love it. It's definitely a passion project. I don't make any money off of it yet. <laughs> I need to create some ways to make a little money. But yeah, I absolutely love it. You say you don't make money out of it, but uh, <laughs> other than enjoying it, does it help you with your business? I think it does in a roundabout way. So I, my audience is other freelancers. So it's mm. not my client base. If it was, if I created a podcast for my client base, then I would be getting work out of it. Um, that might've been smarter for me. I <laughs> always say is... that too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You're the same yeah. way, right? Why am I doing it for other freelancers? But it is in a roundabout way. It is expanding my network. I definitely get referrals from other people that I meet. Um, it, you know, is putting me out there as sort of an expert on how to run a freelance business. Expert's not the right word, but, you know, this is something I talk about all the time. And I am meeting really interesting people outside of writing and editing that I would never have met otherwise. And that's just really fun. But I think it's, and they're also connecting me to other people. So it's not a straight line, but I think I'm definitely getting, you know, work out of it in a roundabout way. Cool. Yeah. You mentioned pricing as one of the things that you help mm -hmm. people with. How did you help yourself with that? Like how, how did you sort of overcome that tricky thing of pricing? Yeah, I, 
in the beginning, when I first went out on my own, I had an hourly rate. I thought that's what everybody should do. I thought that's how it worked. <laughs> um, and it does in some jobs and some services. And I was talking, I actually hired a business coach. Um, it was another healthcare writer that I knew really well. And so I hired her for a couple of weeks. I hired her with the idea to help me to learn how to pitch articles because I thought I was going to have to do that. And I never really had done that before. But then she ended up being more of kind of a life coach and therapist. And <laughs> I told her that I was thinking about charging, this was in 2013, $75 an hour. And she said, that's too low. And I said, what? Why, why do you think that's too low? And she says, you live in Washington, D.C. It's a very expensive area. You have all these years, you know, decade of experience, more than a decade of experience. You can charge a lot more than that. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And she's like, what's the worst that could happen? What are you scared of? And I was like, oh, am I scared? <laughs> like, maybe I am scared. And so she really pushed me in the beginning to charge $100 an hour with this uh, and, and pointed out that, you know, you can always negotiate down. You can't negotiate up. And I was like, okay. And I really started realizing my fear around that. You know, I'm from the Midwest. We have a reputation for being really nice and <laughs> I don't like to rock the boat. And I, you know, you know, and it was all these weird emotions tied up in a business decision. And so that just got me thinking about pricing a lot. And somewhere along the way, I don't remember how, but I realized that pricing projects rather than hourly rates was a much better way to go because if you price hourly, you're penalized for working faster, which you probably do work faster if you have more experience. And project rates also take into account the value that you're bringing. It recognizes the experience and the years you have, the value the client's getting out of it. Um, you know, depending on what you write, they might be using what you write or edit to make money on their end and they shouldn't, they should be paying you for that. And so I just think there's a lot more that goes into pricing projects. Yeah. So I have what I call now my secret hourly rates that only I, you know, I know it. Um, actually I'm pretty open about it with other freelancers. So right now it's $125 an hour. And so what I try to do is I just start a project rate from there, trying to estimate how many hours it might take me. And that's where time tracking has come in really handy because it tells me how much like projects, how long they actually do take. Mm. And then I multiply it by 125 and I come up with a number and then I just start increasing from there. <laughs> you know, I look at, is this a corporate client that has a lot of money? Is, is it something they want really fast? Is there, is the scope of work very... Um, is it a really big scope of work? Is it something that requires a specific expertise? You know, they can't just hire anybody to do this. Again, my value, you know, their value. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, things that I take into account to come up with a final rate. Um, it's kind of made up in the end. We're all just making up numbers. <laughs> um, so, you know, I come up with a rate. I usually sit on it overnight, you know, and not send it off right away. And, think about it a little bit and then make sure that I always make sure that what number am I comfortable if they need to negotiate down? What number am I comfortable with that I would do it for? So I don't get in the trap of setting this rate and then they want to get negotiate down and I don't want to do it for any less than that because of all the work it'll entail. Um, and I never do it on the phone because I'll get flustered and just start agreeing to things <laughs> or fumbling my words around. 
So I always say, you know, if I'm talking to someone on the phone, I always say, okay, let me think through everything we've talked about and I will email you a rate, you know, within the next two days or something. Yeah. I mean, this. Just the best answer. Um, but uh, one, one thing in there, you know, because you say, you know, do they need it quickly? Mm-hmm. In that instance, out of interest, do you say, you know, this is the fee, including a rush fee, for example, or whatever mm-hmm. words you might say it, i.e. if you came to me with a bit more time, it wouldn't have cost this much. Like, do you, do you bring that up or is that just in your secret head? I haven't had to bring that up because I don't get a lot of rush fees. A lot of times it's in my head where, you know, I'm super busy and normally I would get four weeks to do this type of project and they're giving me like two and a half. Um, And I don't really have those conversations a lot of times if it's something like that. But I know other freelancers who, you know, if, if someone comes to you on a Thursday and says, oh my gosh, I have to get this, you know, it's a really quick turnaround for whatever reason. Can you get this to us first thing Monday? I think when they already know it's a rush and it's like two days or like it's so <laughs> it's so extreme, the timeline is so extreme, I would definitely charge a rush fee and say, okay, I can do this. But, you know, especially if it's a client who knows kind of what your normal rate is, you know, and they know what you normally charge and say, okay, I can do this, but I'm, I'm tacking tacking on this much more um i haven't really had to do that but i definitely have freelancer friends that do that yeah now i always do this thing where i ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie (laughs) what do you have for me melanie oh my gosh i'm so bad at lying so i'm gonna try to like compose myself and say these (laughs) all equally right so i have met tom cruise And when I was a kid, my family rescued dozens of dogs throughout my life. And I have studied Spanish in Guatemala. I love the randomness of these. (laughs) Um, So like, as rescue dogs, as in you'd go to a rescue center and get them or you would just randomly find dogs? Like what was the... (laughs) Just dogs everywhere. No, you would like go to the local rescue, like the Humane Society and take in dogs if they were getting, you know, if they were overflowing. Um, Or sometimes people would find dogs and not know what to do with this and they couldn't keep it until you were able to get it to a shelter that, you know, frankly wouldn't kill it you know, we would take them in our house and, and kind of foster them um, as we're trying to pass them, you know, pass them on to, to other groups. Nice. I like the fact that I don't know if it came across on the microphone, but while you were saying that, the cat that we got from a rescue centre came in and meowed <laughs> loudly, which she never does, as if to say, I approve of this guest. <laughs> Lovely. Wish it wasn't dogs, but I approve. You learnt Spanish in, Guatem- in Guatemala, did you say? I already knew a bit of Spanish, but I studied Spanish in Guatemala for three weeks with the idea to get fluent. It did not happen. I am not fluent, but it was a great time. Okay. And Tom Cruise. So you've met Tom Cruise. Was he trying to get his dog back? Like, how did you meet Tom Cruise? (laughs) That would be kind of (laughs) a nice little connection. So this was back when he was not as controversial and weird. (laughs) Um, So when I was 14, so they filmed 
part of the movie Rain Man in Cincinnati. And I grew up near Cincinnati. And they filmed, they needed this scene that was part of the road trip that he and Dustin Hoffman take. And they found this this set um, near my hometown. And I'm from a very small town. And so there was a group of girls, <laughs> basically teenagers, waiting outside to possibly meet him. But it was only like 25 people because the town is very small and it wasn't like hordes of people. And I didn't have a car yet. So I asked my mom, I heard about this at school and I asked my mom at the end of the day if she would drive me out to this spot in the country is like two miles away. And um, yeah, so she did. And we took my little brother and Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise came walking over and we got their autographs and I probably didn't say anything because I was Top Gun had just come out. So yeah. we were all kind of um, but he came over to us because of my little brother who was probably seven at the time and like the only boy there. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and my brother liked him because he liked Top Gun as well. So he kind of came right toward us. So that was cool. So that sounds, I love the Tom Cruise story, but there's, there's so much detail in there. It's either because you've really thought, Hey, if I'm going to lie, I need a good story or you've got a good story. Cause it's absolutely true. And Tom Cruise is known for, you know, being nice to people who have queued up, to maybe say hi oh god and that's also made me think what a good film that is so <laughs> is it that one or rescue i mean rescue dogs sounds plausible as well i like you know you said you come from a small town so i imagine like you become known as the dog people <laughs> seems plausible but then why would you make up the spanish guatemala one which means i'm saying they're all true so one of them has to be a lie and i'm gonna say it is the rescue dogs. The rescue dogs is the lie. You're right. Yes! We did not rescue dogs. <laughs> no, we went out hunting them. We were the opposite. We rounded I them up. Love, I love dogs, but we were a cat family. We had cats all the time. We didn't really rescue them, but they would find us. And we would often have indoor-outdoor cats growing up. Oh, my God. I swear, my cat must have known. Came in I know. Saying, she's that a, was so funny. Yeah, she's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> your cat uh, caught my yeah. lie there. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? To do it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be bold. You know, I always think as most of my career I was taught you know you get a job and you work your way up and you do what your bosses are told and I was always kind of that good kid right <laughs> and I just worked at places that were not fulfilling or where I didn't have room to um, move up in the ranks in the way that I wanted to and still do the work that I loved and so I wish I had done it way sooner I mean it all worked out because I am where I am now but I wish I hadn't been it wasn't even that I was scared I wasn't even thinking about it as a possibility it just yeah. seemed so foreign and I wish I had done it a lot sooner it was a lot braver interesting Melanie, it's been so good to talk to you. You must check out the Deliberate Freelancer podcast. Of course, there will be links through so that you can find that and everything else that Melanie does by going to beingfreelance.com. So go there. As for all of our guests, you'll find links through. Uh, there's a transcript for each podcast as well, if that's useful to you. We pick out links as well so that you can go through and find out what each guest is doing. And remember, there's like 250 guests to pick from. So whatever they do, it's not about the specific job. It's all about the being 
freelance so do go back and dig through the archive as well but for now melanie thank you so much it's been awesome to talk to you and all the best being freelance thank you this was a lot of fun and i'm glad to be on your show which i do listen to as well Being Freelance is made by me, Steve Folland, with writing support for the show notes from Sophie Livingston at Kickstart Content. Thank you, Sophie. Everything else, though, really is just me. And whilst I do make podcasts and videos for a living, if Being Freelance has made a difference to you over the years, you can help keep it coming by supporting on a monthly basis at beingfreelance.com slash coffee. Right. Have a great week. Being Freelance. <laughs>